Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today we'll meet Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan's pick to head the city's planning and development department. He comes to Detroit from Houston and his career is focused on making development more equitable and inclusive. We're going to hear about his prior experience and what he has in mind for Detroit. Then we'll talk about the much-anticipated return of travel between the United States and Canada, a really exciting development for us here along the Detroit-Windsor border. That's next on Detroit Today, but now the news from NPR. And as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. We are several years now into Detroit's revival as a city that's attracting major investment and attention from businesses. But that turnaround has not always touched the people here who need it the most. In fact, there's a feeling that continues to grow that not only are so-called improvements not reaching the lives of many Detroiters, they might actually represent a threat to life in some underserved neighborhoods. How do you rebuild a city that has been devastated by economic disinvestment for decades without displacing the residents who have stayed put and stuck it out through all of it? It's one of the toughest questions and challenges that we face as a city. Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan recently announced he is nominating a new member of the administration who will help tackle these issues. Antoine Bryant is a Brooklyn, New York native and a longtime urban planner. If confirmed, he would serve as the city's new director of planning and development. The city says his career focus has been the development and social empowerment of underserved communities. Antoine Bryant, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to be here now. Thank you. So let's start with you introducing yourself. What do you think people here in Detroit and in Southeast Michigan need to know about you as a person and a longtime urban planner? Uh, There's quite a bit. Um, I'd like to say I'm glad to be here to talk to the people of Detroit. Uh, I am a native New Yorker from Brooklyn, grew up in NYCHA, New York City Housing Authority, um, most of my life. And as a result of living in what people call the projects, I knew I wanted to find a way to Uh, make my community better. And when I went to school for architecture and planning, uh, I found out that planning served as the foundation to be able to create policy and not just work specifically on the physical development of an area. And after receiving my undergraduate from Cornell and going to graduate school at the University of Texas for architecture, I was able to marry uh, both of those academic disciplines into my formative work. And my first professional job, uh, full-time job after graduate school, was working in Houston's Third Ward to help uh, develop affordable housing. And we were able to uh, create over 30 units of rental housing. Uh, This was in Houston's Third Ward. And this was for households making uh, between 30 and 60% of AMI uh, with the nationally recognized Project Row Houses. 
And that project is now still alive and well, nearly 20 years later, uh, and the community helped lead to much of the design of those units as well. And so I've always looked at engagement as, you know, paramount to uh, creating a viable community. And it'll be my goal to really uh, enhance and inform that community voice during my time here in Detroit. Hmm. So what made you decide that you wanted to bring your talents here to Detroit, where I have to be honest, like I said in the open, we've really struggled to navigate this question of how you rebuild a city that's been devastated by economic disinvestment without displacing the people who are themselves the victims of that economic disinvestment. People like me who grew up here in the city in the 70s uh, and 80s remember a time when Detroit was uh, was a place where there was a lot more opportunity than there is now. Uh, there's opportunity cropping up again in Detroit, but a, a lot of us are asking who it's for and who it will benefit. Uh, talk about what attracted you to that to that problem here uh, in Detroit. No, it's a great it's a great question. Uh, there's a lot that attracted me. Detroit's an incredible city, and I've met incredible people across the country uh, that are from Detroit. And what's fascinating, whenever I've been on conferences and, and or when I've been in various parts of the town of the country, and meet someone and they start from Detroit, they're incredibly proud of Detroit, even if they're not living there personally. And so I've had the opportunity to visit probably a dozen times prior to uh, my interview process here, and saw the vibrance amongst the residents, but also the, the challenge. And so I was intimately aware of the challenge when I kind of talked to residents, even just visiting. One of the things that I see though, is that we're at a pivotal point where there is very directed interest from the private sector. There's a commitment by the philanthropic sector, and now there are resources coming in at the on the public end. And uh, throughout my entire process of coming here, both the philanthropic and corporate sector has pledged that they want to work with the city directly to be able to ensure that there are more jobs for people as well as more physical development. And so it came as a, as a uh, kind of a zenith of all three of those aspects coming together uh, that we have the opportunity to pivot and really move forward. One of the things that I told the mayor during my process was that um, I want to come on to make sure that over the 140 plus neighborhoods here that all those residents are heard from. Right. So there's been a concerted effort to do development in certain parts of town. That part's very apparent. But I think moving forward, we have to ensure that funds are directed to the neighborhoods that have not received the sheen of certain parts of town. Mm. And so my goal is to make sure that that is as equitable a process as we can possibly do, which would mean that we make sure that these resources are directed uh, across the city. And that's both from physical development to social programming as well, and ensuring that these things move forward, inclusive, but not excluding uh, even the development opportunities for uh, black developers across the city as well. Mm. So, so I want to talk just a little about things you've seen in other places that maybe suggest that other cities are getting it right on this, on this question in ways that we haven't figured out here in Detroit. You're somebody who uh, is from New York. You work in Houston. Uh, you've seen and done things in, in lots of different places. I'm always curious uh, when people come here, uh, if they can kind of point to things that they think are models for, for success for us. Uh, can, you, can you think of any? 
Sure. I mean, there, there's a couple of models. I mean, unfortunately, there's some that have done it wrong and then there's some that have done it, done, done it right. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that uh, I really appreciate is that you have a very vocal uh, nonprofit community and a very uh, empowered and, and uh, um, motivated kind of developer community. Uh, I've been made aware of a number of smaller developers that many of them have Detroit roots. Many of them are obviously, you know, black and want to reinvest. And so trying to find a way that they can have the greatest opportunity for resources and connections in the city, I think will be pivotal. Um, I think you have a very strong uh, resident base that, you know, obviously, as you noted in your intro, have been through the storm, right? They're still here. And I think we have to leverage the passion of our local Detroit base and of the population that's already here. In Houston, we had uh, growing levels of success by empowering our community residents to take a much greater impact as part of the development process. Uh, I'm sure you guys have talked extensively uh, about the, the CBO or in the, in the South, it was called CBA agreements, mm -hmm. uh, using those as tools to work with developers to make sure that uh, development occurs equitably. That's something that was is in the very formative stages in Houston. Uh, there were some growing pains. Uh, with that were a very large development in Houston near the third ward, but now they've come to a resolution where the project was developed, but also they're looking at uh, the implementation of affordable housing as well as some job programs with the establishment of a large tech sector there uh, in third ward of Houston. So that one was, there were some growing pains. There was some uh, conversations that were very tough, but it has led to a positive outcome. I think that, you know, and the thing that grieves me about my hometown, for example, in Brooklyn, is that none of that is occurring, right? And so there's been, quite frankly, development that occurred outside of the discussion and of the residents. And that's what led to the transformation of, uh, you know, my hometown where it's not been equitable. And so one of the things that I've talked about, and, you know, quite frankly, I'm looking at the next five weeks, I'll be talking and meeting with people. So I'll be doing, quite frankly, more listening than actual speaking. But I want to make sure that I hear from all of the neighborhoods, hear from the residents, so that we are making the best response from a planning standpoint as we move forward. Hmm. I'm talking with Antoine Bryant. He is the nominee to be the city of Detroit's new planning and development director. Uh, he still has to get the uh, OK of Detroit City Council, uh, which gets to say yes or no to uh, mayoral appointees. Uh, he comes to us, though, from Houston, uh, where he has spent uh, a long time in uh, city planning and architecture. Um, uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation, too. What questions do you have about planning and development in Detroit? It's something we talk about a lot here on Detroit Today. It's something we talk about a lot as a community. How do you redevelop and rebuild a city that has suffered such disinvestment for so long without negatively impacting the residents who were the victims of that uh, disinvestment to begin with. If you think of uh, how different Detroit is now than it was 40 or 50 years ago for the people who live here, uh, think of all the things that are happening in Detroit right now in terms of people uh, investing and spending money and creating new opportunities are the people who live here really benefiting from that? And uh, I think we know that the answer right now is uh, pretty much no and that uh, things are getting worse, in fact, for some folks. The question is, how do, you, how do you flip that equation? How do you make sure that the people who live here 
are actually the beneficiaries of uh, all this excitement. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and uh, put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag uh, Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, uh, Antoine, before we get to uh, our listeners here, I want to talk about the American Rescue Plan, which is bringing an unprecedented amount of money uh, that is going to be able to be used to help neighborhoods. Uh, What are some of the things that you think that money could be prioritized for uh, that would make a difference on this, this specific question of uh, of broadening the, the the benefits, I guess, of uh, investment and opportunity in the city. Steve, I think it's a great question. Uh, first of all, it is a is a phenomenal number of resources. For those that don't know, there's 426 million, which is which is very impressive. That has to be allocated by the end of 24. That has to be spent by the end of 26. So essentially, we've got a little less than three years to put these resources in place. Uh, I know that the mayor has done a number of listening tours. I know that several community groups and the press have been out in the communities as well and have garnered a number of responses as well has been made aware to me that several of the council members have made some uh, adjustments and some revisions and some ideas. So I think all of that is incredibly valuable. One of the things that I've heard uh, almost comprehensively and, and consistently from many of the residents that I've had a chance to meet with as well as other business owners is reinvesting in homes, right? Reinvesting in what essentially comes down to the core elements of wealth building for American families, right? Uh, over 85% of American households, their wealth comes from their home. And so if your home has been damaged or has had neglect or just have you not been able to maintain it for whatever reason, then that severely curtails the, the wealth opportunity for you as a household. So I think that uh, reinvestment and home repair is going to be paramount. Uh, I also believe that we have to uh, create opportunities for affordable housing. Um, That's something that is always a need in most of our American cities, and it's definitely one here as well. And so being able to focus on true affordable housing, too. And what I mean by that is ensuring that rental opportunities and single family opportunities are um, affordable for Detroiters. Right. And looking at what the the median income and household incomes for residents of Detroit and not just uh, from a regional basis. And I understand that there's nuances to how you view that affordability. And then thirdly, and this is something that we'll be working with, and both of the ones I just uh, mentioned, obviously working hand in hand with our uh, housing department, which has been doing an outstanding job in reaching out to the community and, and actually providing opportunities, but working hand in hand with them, but also looking at job creation and, uh, and also job skills. There's an opportunity if we want people to be able to maintain their homes, to to grow their homes, to be able to uh, be successful. We also have to um, have the opportunity to provide them with great jobs, with well-paying jobs and with skills that would enable them to be uh, entrepreneurial. 
You know, one of the things that we've done and I've seen in Houston, it's good to, you know, train someone how to be an electrician or how to be a plumber. Mm -hmm. But if you can also give them the skills to be entrepreneurial and get their license and have their own electrician business, then you've been able to create a legacy for that household. Uh, And so those are some of the things initially I think we need to focus on. But also, lastly, and and I I, want to make sure we're inclusive about this, uh, the developer community I've met and I'm going to be meeting uh, quite a few of residents who are in the development uh, arena. And I think I want to ensure that they have a seat at the table because they have a vested interest in trying to rebuild the city from within as natives as well. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue to get to know Antoine Bryant, who is the nominee to be the City of Detroit's new Planning and Development Director. We also want to hear from you. What do you think about development in the city, all of this talk of revival and rebirth in Detroit? Is it reaching the people who actually live here, the people who need it the most? If not, what could we do from a planning and development perspective to be more inclusive, to make sure that more people are able to reach the opportunities that are cropping up. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. We'll get to John and Jefferson Chalmers, Elena in Detroit next. If you want to join them, give us a call. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest is Antoine Bryant. He has been nominated by Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan to be the city of Detroit's next planning and development director. I'm talking with him about his experience in other cities around the country and what he would hope to accomplish here in Detroit. We're talking specifically about inclusion and equity as they relate to planning and development in a city like Detroit. It's something we talk about an awful lot around here. How do we make all of this investment and enthusiasm uh, about Detroit and the things that we've seen happen over the last decade or so matter for the people who actually live here, the people who've lived here the whole time, uh, the people who have been the victims of the disinvestment that the city has experienced over that time? It's a very tough question uh, to both answer and then uh, execute, I guess, an answer in order to change the outcomes, we certainly haven't gotten there yet. Uh, we're talking about what things we would need to do, uh, what kind of things we would need to be considering in order to make uh, development more equitable in Detroit. want to hear from you as well. What do you think Detroit ought to be doing? How should we be thinking about development uh, that would produce a different set of outcomes? Uh, what ideas do you have for including more people in the opportunities that are coming up so frequently these days in Detroit. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Elena in Detroit. Elena, 
Welcome to the show. Are you there, um, Elena? I think it's, yeah, I'm yeah. here. Go ahead. Okay. I wanted to say welcome to Antoine, and I hope that you're un- able to understand what it means for tax capture to divert our money away from our schools and our libraries and to Little Caesars Arena and the wonderful new shiny investment downtown for rich people. But these literally take away from our schools and our libraries, which is why we are so dedicated to changing the charter of the city of Detroit to take the money out of the hands of the downtown development authority and into the hands of the taxpayers. Mm. It would be a great idea, but I want you to know that Duggan is terrified of this and it'll be a great challenge to see what you're able to do. I can't wait to hear what you're going to do. Mm. Uh, Elena, really appreciate the the call and the and the context there. Uh, Antoine Bryant, do you have a response? I know you probably are still f- figuring out a lot of the way things work around here, but but Elena's right about that uh, that current situation and the, and the proposed change. Well, no, thank you, Elena, for your call. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, I think what you are right, uh, Stephen. I'm, I am kind of uh, beginning my hands around uh, many of the nuances and, and all of those and the challenges that exist. I do know that schools and libraries are a real issue. Uh, uh, Ironically enough, my family came in just last night. So I have an elementary school and a a middle schooler. So I am intimately sensitive about schools and libraries. So I think I'll need to look at that and get kind of a greater understanding of where it is. But that's something that I'll definitely be looking to to be focused on as well. Hmm. Uh, Again, Elena, I really appreciate the call uh, and the question. Let's go to Chase in Detroit. Chase, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hey. Thank you, Stephen. Yep. Um, and Mr. Bryan, very excited about you being here in Detroit. Um, question regarding our, our master plan. Um, this comes up in planning circles in the city as well as in community meetings, but we haven't done a comprehensive update to our master plan in a very long time. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about updating, um, updating the master plan and, and what possibility and opportunity that presents for just regular residents in the city. Hmm. Great question, uh, Chase. Uh, go ahead, Antoine. Great question, Chase. I, I thank you for that. And, and ironically enough, I think we know quite a few people in common. So we'll have to uh, meet in person so we can kind of have a chat about that offline. I look forward to it. As far as the master plan, I was made aware uh, that there has not been an update. I can tell you and I can tell the public that that is something that I talked to our staff about. Uh, we're looking to do a master plan update, ideally uh, within the first year. Um, we want to focus on that. That is something that needs to happen. And that update will be inclusive. That update will have our staff reaching out across the city to make sure that uh, Detroiters are a part of that process. Um, a master plan update is long overdue. And this update will be a very comprehensive one, but also a very inclusive one. So I can tell you that that's something that I'm looking forward to engaging. And uh, I think that you and I will connect probably next two weeks anyway to talk further. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, Chase, uh, appreciate the call and the, the really great question. Michael on Twitter says uh, he wonders if you have any thoughts on the planning around having homeowners also be residents. There are lots of rumblings that most Detroiters rent. That is that is true, uh, and that's something that's changed over the last five or six years. That for the first time in a long time, the majority of people in the city don't own the homes that they live in, uh, and that's not improving. That's getting worse. Uh, Michael says, uh, are there any strategic and practical things that Detroit can be doing to increase homeowners uh, being the residents? Uh, I- interesting question, uh, Antoine. I wonder if you've faced that other places, but also what you think of what we're dealing with here. 
Yeah, no, that that is an interesting question. And, and I'm, you know, unfortunately, sometimes with, with Twitter, you don't get to understand directly because that, that question can go a number of different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I was concerned about was some of the challenges that exist with uh, Detroit residents actually getting mortgages. Uh, that's something that I was made aware of even prior to my arrival mm-hmm. and something that I've been told about extensively. So one of the things I want to talk about in-house in the planning department is how we can make a, a engagement with our lending community uh, to ensure that, you know, lending opportunities are available for the residents here to be able to get mortgages and get homes. That's that's one angle uh, of that question. That another one, and I just want to make sure I'm, I'm addressing it because it could have been interpreted a couple different ways is the way that we ensure that ownership opportunities are primarily uh, or available to Detroiters and not uh, residents or, excuse me, people coming in from out of town and having absentee ownership, right? We want to ensure that ownership is made available uh, to Detroit residents, be it either their homes that they're living in or an a lot or a home adjacent to theirs. And so they have, you know, the first opportunity to get that. Uh, we have some programs already in place to try to accelerate the availability of residents to be able to acquire properties near them. And we want to ensure that that's something that's key and maintained as well. So I just want to, I think Michael's question could have went a double different ways, but I wanted to make sure I addressed it as many ways as possible. Hmm. So, you know, the, the question of bank loans and the question of sort of absentee owners and, you know, opportunity for Detroiters to be able to, to buy, of course, are uh, they're linked uh, in Detroit, at least. I mean, one kind of drives uh, the other. Uh, I, I, I am always curious about whether other cities have that same issue, and if they do, how they how they address it. Like uh, again, back to that question I asked uh, earlier about places you've seen things work. This is this is one of the critical kind of uh, leverage points, I think, for changing. Um, not only the, the the real estate market and the stability in the real estate market in the city, but also opening up economic opportunity. After all, for, for most of us, it's still true that uh, our most significant investment is going to be the home that we live in. And for so many Detroiters, that just never, that never happens. It never materializes. Have you seen uh, some successes other places uh, with this question? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it is, yeah, I mean, I absolutely correct. It is uh, unquestionably, the, the the primary wealth building tool uh, in this country. One of the things that you know has had some level of success in Houston, and I think you know we may have an opportunity to have this discussion here, has been uh, what we call alternative lenders, right? So you know the traditional bank model typically is is very strict on uh, a lot of their criteria. And so you're, they, it's very easy to exclude a lot of households, right? And mm-hmm. for better or for worse, it appears that that has been, you know, used to its, its utmost uh, here in Detroit. Um, but what we've been able to see and had some success with in the past is uh, some of our smaller com- community banks, uh, our credit unions, uh, they've been incredibly uh, effective in uh, lending to, quote unquote, uh, working class and low-income borrowers, right? So for many first-time home buyers, they're able to get their first-time mortgages from some of our more local plans and some of our uh, credit unions and our local banks in the South. Then additionally, we were able to marry this uh, with uh, um, grant programs. So they were, you know, they were uh, first-time home buyer grants where they, you know, would receive anywhere between five to $30,000 
in first-time Briar Grants for their first home. And that was something that was incredibly impactful uh, for the city of Houston and our, in the Houston Housing and Community Development Department, uh, where they were, you know, giving out grants to hundreds of households every year uh, for first-time home buyers. And so that's something that, you know, I know our housing department may want to take a look at, but really is about promoting uh, these lending opportunities in the, the, the lending community uh, so that it's not as exclusionary as it is right now, which right now it's, it's just it's just terrible. And it has to be something that we have to fix. Mm. Uh, again, thanks very much for uh, the call and the questions, Chase. Let's go to Gloria in southwest Detroit. Gloria, what's on your mind? Are you there, Gloria? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, good morning and welcome to the city. I wanted to ask you, in terms of your experience and expertise with things such as, and I appreciate people owning their homes, but what about preserving their homes, updating their homes in light of climate change issues? Mm. We've had the floods, we have water shutoffs, we have lead pipes, we have tons of all of that infrastructure that has to be changed mm -hmm. to the benefit of the community. So what is your experience with that? How closely will you work with sustainability and how much of an example will the city give in terms of its own buildings and its own retrofitting, which I know may not may not be part of what you're doing, but it's all connected. Mm. I appreciate some information on, on that and your plans and your vision on that. Thank yeah. you. Gloria, really great question. Uh, Antoine, I don't know if you know what kind of summer we've had here in Detroit, <laughs> but it's been it's been pretty bizarre. Uh, you know, as somebody who's lived here much of my life, I have never seen weather like we've had, but I've also never seen the consequences of weather, of weather like we've had this this immense flooding that happens when these really serious uh, and sudden storms take place is is just not what we're used to around here. And it's a reminder, of course, that uh, we have a lot of uh, catch up to do with investing in, in infrastructure. But I think Gloria's question really is, is how planning and development relates to uh, both infrastructure and things like uh, preparing people's houses uh, for, uh, you know, for the kind of climate and weather that we're having, which of course is just, it's just different than what we've ever seen. Well, no, thanks, Stephen, you make some great points and Gloria, thank you for the question. And, and I appreciate the welcome. One of, one of the things I've noted to a few people I've, I've spoken to, you know, Detroit has had a, a pretty tough couple of, of, of months in the last 30 days or so definitively. Uh, unfortunately, coming from, you know, Houston for the last 17 years, you know, I've seen, a, I know a thing or two about floods, right? right? So right. it's something that if there's anything we know about, I think I know a thing or two about floods. One thing that I think that the Detroiters will acknowledge, and, and, and I will definitely agree, is that climate change is a real thing. Right. So anyone that tries to attest to against that, I think it's, it's unfortunate that you, we get harsh reminders on, on a pretty frequent basis. I think there's there's two ways to address this. Uh, one of the things I um, share with the mayor when I first was uh, being interviewed was a collaborative approach. Right. We're planning and development. We'll be working intimately with uh, housing. We'll be working with uh, the water department. We'll be working with public works. We'll be working across all of the departments to make a much more comprehensive approach to how the city uh, grows and how the city is run, uh, how the city develops. Um, you know, how you address infrastructure, it's, it doesn't go away. The costs don't get smaller. So we have to make a much more comprehensive look at how we are able to address 
uh, climate issues because they're going to come again. There's going to be another thunderstorm. There's going to be another pot of rain. And we're going to have to look pretty critically at our systems to be able to uh, receive that water. Now, as far as individuals and as far as households, uh, I've um, taken a leadership uh, role kind of at the national level at looking at uh, health and equity and uh, resiliency uh, for households. And one of the things that we're looking at is how we address the resiliency of our individual homeowners. You know, we have to do assessments on these homes. You know, most of the housing stock in Detroit is older, right? So what does that mean? That means we have to look at your plumbing. We have to look at your water, wastewater, because more than likely it's aged past its, its um, optimal usage. And so what do those costs look like? Uh, one of the things that we did very successfully I worked with our local chapter of the American Institute of Architects, the AIA, right after Hurricane Ike. And, you know, it was it killed the city, quite frankly. Uh, what we were able to do is we looked, we went door to door and we provided complimentary um, housing assessments to those homeowners uh, by licensed architects to over 500 homes. And what that allowed those homeowners to do was they now had a very comprehensive and free um, uh, document that was able to tell them what exactly their needs were and how to address them. Most people that own a home, they don't know everything about construction. You know, they bought a house so they could take care of them and their family. And then when a disaster hits, they really are beholden to, quite frankly, a guy that drove up in a, in a truck that says, oh, this is what happened with your house. And or, you know, an insurance claim adjuster who says, this is what happened to your house. And usually those two estimates are dissimilar. And so now you're left with a resident that doesn't really know which way to go. And I think we have to have an education opportunity so people know where their gaps are from their homes. And then we can begin to address some of those gaps. One of the things that we have talked about and the mayor has already implemented is a, a, a lot of funds towards home repair. And I think that that's something that we're going to really ramp up in the coming uh, months. And our housing department has been doing an admirable job of getting that out the way. Hmm. So I've got one more question before I have to let you go. It's about our history and our legacy as the Motor City. Uh, you know, Detroit is synonymous with cars and car culture, and that has a real effect on the way we live in Detroit, the way we design in Detroit, and the way we plan uh, in Detroit. And sometimes uh, that can be an urban planner's nightmare, I think, when you're thinking about neighborhoods and walkability and all the things that, uh, that that people talk about in modern design, the, those things are confounded sometimes by the reliance on automobiles here, but also the love for, for automobiles and, you know, wide streets. Uh, I mean, I, I think we have more six and seven lane streets uh, running through the middle of the city than any other city I've ever been to. Uh, they run through the middle of the neighborhoods. I, I really wonder what your experience has been uh, with that and and how you might approach that question here in Detroit? It's a great question, Stephen. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's synonymous with the Motor City. I mean, that's that's how it's been known. You know, I'm, I'm a kid in the 70s, so, you know, I'm very familiar with that nomenclature. Mm -hmm. uh, I think from a, a, a planning standpoint, you know, I think one of the things, and, and let me be abundantly clear about this, 
Uh, as a planner, I've always been a community planner. I've always been a, what, you know, my paramount has been what we call participatory planning. And so I'm intimately sensitive to what the community would like to see. And then you marry that with the expertise that you received academically and professionally to be able to deliver um, what the community like to see. I think one of the things that, you know, we have to be aware of is that you can have quote unquote car culture and our love of vehicles and still have a comfortable uh, way for pedestrians uh, to be able to move around the city. Uh, you can, you know, much of that is done with streetscapes and being very intentional about how you develop those two in concert, right? You can have a healthy and viable and safe pedestrian opportunity and still have ability to drive back and forth. Right. One of the things that we've seen and we've had some very successful streetscape opportunities already in the last couple of years here in Detroit. We've done a, a, a bit with the planning department through the work on Livernois that's been incredibly transformative for that stretch. And we're looking to extend it uh, in the next year or two. Uh, you where you still have the ability for vehicles to go back and forth, but you also have a safe way for pedestrians to walk with their families, to walk with their loved ones, and it's a comfortable place to be. And so you can marry the opportunity to have a, a great way for your cars, have your great way for mass transit like in your buses, but also a safe way for pedestrians to walk and be comfortable with street trees, with street furniture, and those kinds of Things. And so you do not have to have this, this adversarial relationship. Um, I think there's a very, very um, uh, symbiotic one that can happen between our ones, uh, pedestrians, as well as our residents behind the wheel. Okay. Antoine Bryant, uh, current nominee to be the city of Detroit's new planning and development director. It was really great to get to know you and talk with you about uh, your past in the city of Detroit here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Greatly appreciate it. Okay. We are going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the plan for reopening the border with Canada, what you'll need to know and how that's going to make life just a little more normal here along the Detroit Windsor border. I know a lot of people who are really excited about being able to travel to Canada and already making plans uh, to go to places like Toronto and Montreal. Stay with us. We'll be right back for with more Detroit Today. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you joined us. So following the much-anticipated announcement that Canada would open its borders to fully vaccinated Americans August 9th, the United States government doubled down on its pandemic restrictions on non-essential travel through the U.S.-Canada border for at least another month. As our next guest explains, the move marks a split between the two countries and was motivated at least partly because of the aggressive Delta coronavirus variant. Amanda Coletta is a reporter with The Washington Post who covers Canada, and she joins us now. Amanda, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's start here. I know so many people who were really excited about the idea of travel opening back up between the United States and Canada. And here in Detroit, of course, that means 
we can just drive over the bridge to visit our neighbors uh, and, of course, go to, to cities like Toronto or, or Montreal, which are common trips, vacations for people here. Uh, but then the U.S. government kind of uh, threw a stick in the mud and said, we're not quite ready to get there yet. Uh, talk about the disconnect, I guess, between the two cities and what it's going to mean for people here uh, along the uh, Detroit-Windsor border. Um, so, yes, this is the first time since the border restrictions were implemented um, in March of 2020 that the two countries haven't moved in lockstep. Um, we haven't heard much in the way of an explanation uh, from the Biden administration for why it sort of diverged with uh, Canada or diverged from Canada on um, the border restrictions outside of sort of citing concern about the Delta uh, variant. Um, certainly, there's been a lot of uh, angry reaction, I would say, from mostly from U.S. lawmakers who represent uh, border districts um, along the U.S.-Canada border, um, but also from um, some business groups in Canada and from, um, you know, people who have uh, lives that really straddle the border and have family and friends and other loved ones who live on the opposite side of the border and have been uh, kept apart from them for more than a year now. Mm. And what was the likely sort of, I guess, outcome of this? I mean, one difficult question for President Joe Biden's administration, I guess, is whether to follow Canada's lead and just require all visitors to be vaccinated before entering the United States, which seems like a solution, but is that something... I guess that they're likely to, to end up agreeing on. Um, yeah, that's a, a good question. So Canada is requiring um, American citizens and permanent residents um, who enter the country to upload proof of vaccination uh, beforehand and to also bring um, a copy of their uh, vaccination uh, status with them um, in English, French, or certified translation in order to enter the country. Um, Canadian travelers have this whole time been able to fly to the United States for non-essential travel, regardless of uh, their vaccination status. So it certainly will be interesting to see if there is any easing of the restrictions on the U.S. side, if now suddenly there will be a requirement for some sort of proof of, of vaccination uh, from Canadian travelers. Um, and there will be several sort of thorny questions to sort out if uh, to sort through if that is required. Um, Canada has uh, is allowing uh, fully vaccinated travelers who have been vaccinated with a vaccine that has been authorized by Canadian regulators to enter. So if the Biden administration were to reciprocate and allow Canadian uh, citizens and permanent residents who've been vaccinated fully with vaccines that have been authorized by U.S. regulators. One question would be what that means for Canadians who've been vaccinated in whole and or in part with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which U.S. regulators have not yet authorized. Mm. Um, in much of Canada, uh, officials have also allowed Canadians to mix and match vaccines. So, uh, there are lots of people who, including the Prime Minister, um, who got AstraZeneca for a first dose and then an mRNA vaccine from Pfizer or Moderna for a second dose or who got a first dose of Moderna and a second dose of Pfizer, vice versa. Um, and the, you know, U.S. 
officials haven't uh, really embraced that mixing, and it's unclear if they will um, sort of accept that as, you know, fully vaccinated if mm-hmm. they are requiring some proof of vaccination. Yeah. So, so uh, I know that from a lot of people, this is about being able to travel back and forth, uh, vacation, that kind of thing. But this has commercial and economic implications uh, as well, right? I mean, uh, the, the, the two countries, the amount of trade uh, that we do, the amount of reliance we have on, on each other. Uh, talk about the, the, the sort of broader implications, I guess, of making sure that we can sort this out and that people can get back and forth across the border as they need to. Right. So um, because the governments have allowed um, trade and the movement of, quote unquote, essential cross-border workers to continue, this, the, the, there have been sort of limited effects on trade mm-hmm. between the two countries. But I have spoken to a lot of um, business owners who have said that uh, you know, they believe they're traveling for an essential work purpose uh, to the United States or, uh, you know, Americans uh, traveling to Canada for an essential business purpose um, and how the rules are being um, implemented at the border. There's wide sort of discretion and it, it depends on which, um, you know, border border agent is in, in at the border that day and how he or she interprets the rules. And so um, some business owners in Canada have said that they um, had been sort of scaling back their travel to the United States for business trips or to meet clients in person because they weren't sure, for instance, when they returned to Canada, they would need to be uh, quarantining for two weeks. Um, You know, some of their employees got a border agent who said, you don't need to do that. Uh, Others said, no, uh, you need to. And so that sort of limited, um, you know, what they say is really important face-to-face contact with potential clients or or old clients and building um, those relationships. So, um, you know, and in terms of what I've been hearing from U.S. lawmakers, a lot of them in districts um, along the border, in border communities right across the border, uh, like Detroit, they're, you know, sort of um, reliant, not necessarily on vacationers, but on Canadians who would cross, you know, a couple of times a week just to fill up their their tanks or to buy a bag of milk or um, you know to have a, have dinner at a restaurant um, and that is a, a really I guess crucial piece that um, you know they're looking for and that won't necessarily uh, be addressed unless the, you know if if the Biden administration doesn't reciprocate soon. Yeah. I'm talking with Amanda Coletta. She's a Washington Post reporter who covers Canada, talking about the push and pull, I guess, of negotiations between the U.S. and Canadian governments over border crossings, uh, the way that uh, we will be able to go to Canada and they will be able to come here uh, and then, of course, be able to get back into your home country because of the COVID-19 restrictions uh, that we've been living under for such a long time. Uh, We'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, Do you live in Canada? Do you live on this side of that border? Uh, Are you uh, trying to negotiate or trying to navigate uh, all of these restrictions and the changes as they are announced to the way that uh, travel is going to be 
uh, regulated between uh, the two countries. Uh, give us a call and let us know if you're somebody who's excited about the possibility of being able to go to Canada again uh, the way we used to. Uh, or are you someone who's a little worried about uh, reopening the border too quickly and the fear from things like the Delta variant, for instance, and the ways that that could change uh, the picture for COVID here in the, in the U.S. and in Canada. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the Facebook page here at WDET or to Twitter and hashtag us, and uh, we'll, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Amanda, I want to ask you about these variants, uh, like the Delta variant and how quickly it is changing the face of COVID and COVID response here in the U.S. Uh, what effect might that have on the possibility of this uh, this border opening and maybe having to close it again, I guess, in the future? Um, so public health officials in Canada have definitely said that um, the reopening or at least the easing of restrictions at the U.S.-Canada border is, going to be contingent on um, the epidemiology. Uh, so for now, it seems like uh, they are comfortable enough with where Canada is in terms of its case counts and uh, vaccination rates in order to take this next step. But again, it's a phase reopening, so it's only fully vaccinated travelers uh, for now. They've said that if the situation uh, changes, then they are, you know, always watching this and they might have to roll uh, things back a little bit. Um, you know, from what we've heard from U.S. officials, that is certainly um, something that is uh, concerning them. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it'll certainly play a role in, in to what extent the Biden administration uh, reciprocates. Yeah. Uh, again, 313 577 1019 is the number on the phones. Andy in Detroit, you're up next. I've only got a couple minutes left, but I want to get your question in here. Go Hello. ahead, Andy. Yeah, hi. I've got a cottage over there for years, and uh, part of my uh, enjoyment is being able to come and go and take care of my house in Detroit as well. Mm -hmm. And the blanket statement that was announced that uh, uh, fully vaccinated Americans will be able to enter uh, and the only re one of the restrictions was a 72-hour prior COVID test. And I'm wondering, I'm going to get over there and spend a few days, and now I have to come back here and cut my grass and tend to a thousand other things in Detroit. So I wonder if there's any information whether uh, that COVID test is going to be good for second and third and fourth re-entries that yeah. uh, I would uh, uh, historically do yeah. within the first three or four weeks. Right. Great, Thanks. Uh, great question, Andy. Uh, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I want to give Amanda a chance to, to respond because we're running out of time. But uh, Amanda, what's what's the answer to Andy's question? Um, my understanding is that uh, the the negative COVID test needs to be taken uh, within or seventy two out within the seventy two hours before um, arrival at the border. So it does not seem to me like it would be something that you can sort of uh, reuse um, over the next uh, couple of trips. Mm -hmm. um, that is certainly something, you know, I've heard from other um, American citizens and permanent residents who are, you know, who aren't coming 
necessarily just for a vacation. They they are used to making these frequent um, trips to Canada because their lives straddle the border, and that's what it means to live in a border a, a border community. That that is, um, you know, having to take these tests all the time is something that is uh, a concern for them. Yeah. Okay, Amanda Cleta of the Washington Post. Really great to have you here this conversation on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. To do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow and I hope you will too. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.